0: Hello and welcome to another Unorthodoxy podcast and more specifically to another Q&A podcast. In this episode I'm going to be answering a number of questions uh, on miscellaneous subjects asked by Patrick. They are really great questions so we're going to be getting into topics like hermeneutics, psychedelics, intentional communities and a few other things. This should be fun. So here's Patrick's first question. Could you give me an example of a scripture in the Bible that you think is commonly misunderstood? If you were to rewrite it, how would you? Heresy, I know. Before I answer this question directly, which is what I will try to do, it's good to keep in mind that the whole Bible is frequently misunderstood. Still, I am in general rather fond of ambiguities and nuances in meaning, which is where the misunderstandings come from. There is fun to be had in exploring meanings and discussing where they take us. So, I happen to think that the ambiguities in the Bible are often rather wonderful and provocative. Being fairly well-versed in philosophical hermeneutics, I also know that there is almost no way around ambiguities in any case. Even the most literal and simple of statements will be loaded with, with interpretive possibilities. If you pay particular attention, for example, to debates around universal salvation and life after death, you will notice a strange tendency of exegetes to bend meanings to suit prior interpretive coordinates, such that seemingly literal statements about the afterlife made by Paul are taken as metaphorical And metaphorical statements made by Jesus are taken as literal. Quite frankly, this has shown me that it almost doesn't matter how clear a writer or speaker is managing to be, misunderstandings will happen. This is not to say we don't have any clarity here, but that ambiguities are always going to haunt our interpretations. And maybe this is a good thing. We need perhaps to genuinely search the scriptures and wrestle with its meanings in the context of the great tradition, because... There is something, as the rabbis very early on saw, to wrestling with God through the scriptures. We are changed through our wrestling. But that said, the question is, if there is any particular verse I would pick on that I think is frequently misunderstood and they rewrite it to make it more understandable. To be honest, I'm not going to pick one verse. um, And I've already preempted the subject I would pick on. Well, if I look at the most ferocious and often vindictive theological debates in recent years, as well as in theological history, I would in fact pick on some of those verses about life after death to rewrite, especially around the question of what is mistranslated as hell in the English New Testament. I know this is not exactly a single scripture, since scripture is massively hyperlinked and intertextual. It seems to me that it would have been helpful if these scriptures had been clarified somehow. To be honest, even though I'm inclined towards universalism myself and have more than a few reasons for this, part of me thinks that it may have been better if any question about life after death had simply been left out of the scriptures entirely leaving ambiguity there like a gaping hole where theological arrogance would have nothing to get a handle on, no matter what was being argued. So maybe instead of rewriting those scriptures, maybe a few of them should have been left out. In a way, maybe this means I would have preferred more ambiguity, not less around this issue in the Bible. Um, And I know that that doesn't exactly answer the question, but I guess it gives you a feel for how I would approach it. In a way, I I hope this actually just gives you something to think about. I think the question is great and it's worth considering where misunderstanding the Bible can cause damage. Patrick's second question is, what do you think about language, how it shapes our reality and meaning making? I really love language. I like words a lot and I don't think I would have a podcast if that were not true. And I like to think of language sacramentally as a kind of portal or doorway to presence words can bring to light and open up various concealed dimensions of being and i think it is vital that words are always tied to being itself we are closest to speaking the truth when our language involves a creative and dynamic dance with reality whether by our poetry or literalisms or philosophical meanderings I am concerned, very deeply concerned in fact, about any kind of nominalism that detaches words from being, which I see gaining more momentum in recent times through the kind of post-truthism that possesses the media sphere and parts of academia. I see this as one of the most dangerous trends in contemporary culture, really, where it is possible to set up representations that negate the fullness of reality and even do damage to people. I think this destroys the possibility of finding genuine meaning. When someone comes along and sets up some kind of linguistic construct that negates reality rather than revealing it, there's always going to be trouble. Many of the most virulent ideologies of our day and of previous eras do exactly this. They are not intent on seeking out the truth, but are aiming at manufacturing mere consent. Words become tools for manipulation rather than for revelation, tools of absence, not into being, which is one of the first things Plato rages against in his Republic. I think that language is a precious thing because it can connect us with the truth. And I am deeply concerned about the increasing censorship that seems to be plaguing journalism and academia and social media precisely because silencing people leaves no room for correcting them or for being corrected and no room even for noting which people you might want to avoid. Policing our language is not going to get us where we need to go, since it will always amount to subordinating language to ideology rather than to reality and to genuine meaning-making. So, to put it a little differently, I like language because of how it connects us to the world and to each other, and to God. My only medium for connecting with you over there, wherever you are, is through words after all, so yes, I'm grateful for language as a revealer. Which brings me to Patrick's third question. I heard a quote a while back, people create technologies out of a spiritual deficit. What do you think of this? I have to admit that I find this idea very compelling. As Patrick wrote to me later, he figured out where the quote came from and, well, it came from me. I do think people generate technologies in response to spiritual deficits and, perhaps more positively put, to their needs. And so it is no surprise to me, for instance, that we landed up with an extremely Gnostic set of technological media as a direct result of the nihilistic and materialistic trajectory of modernity, which Nietzsche and Heidegger discussed so well. As the West began to forget the relevance of God and even of angels and demons and the supernatural, the need emerged to find a way to access the supernatural, so to speak. And electronic media do function a bit like a seance, bringing nearer to us what is absent. My general understanding of psychology does inform this view, by the way. I think that human beings are, albeit often unconsciously, aware of deficits and needs in their lives and will respond to the world to seek to remedy what they feel is missing or feel they need. When we are hungry, we look for food. That's actually a good metaphor for how the psyche responds to the world. Trouble is, sometimes we will latch onto almost anything that can operate as a substitute for actual food, in much the same way that we might grab junk food instead of trying to find something more nutritious. St. Augustine believed that all of our desires are for God, but we do tend to find various substitute objects that disrupt the original telos of our desires. Well, the same thing applies to technologies. Technologies are not merely tools to us but like language coincidentally which i guess is a kind of technology technologies are revealers and concealers of being we look for the technologies and the messages carried by technologies that answer to a particular inner hunger this means clearly that it is a good thing to step away from our tech occasionally and ask and seek and try to find what our original inner hunger is actually for Now on to Patrick's fourth question, which is also about a technology, a very specific and very ancient one, psychedelics. The question is, what do you think about the theory that psychedelics shaped human beings in terms of their development of abstractions, language, mythology, and so on? I know there is a lot of speculation going around this question at the moment, especially on the anthropological front and the religious front that overlaps with that. On the anthropological front, there is McKenna's famously proposed stoned ape theory in his book Food for the Gods. This theory was recently taken up by the psilocybin mycologist Paul Stamets, who argued, quite unconvincingly, as I'll get to, that the stoned ape theory, which went out of fashion for a time, is really plausible and should be brought back. Then on the religious front, there are theories, for instance, that the fruit in the Garden of Eden taken by Eve and Adam was a psychedelic that the earliest form of the Eucharist was also a psychedelic and that the current form of the Eucharist is just a placebo version of that ancient thing. And there's also the theory that the early church fathers launched a campaign against psychedelics because psychedelics were linked to pagan rituals and worship. Brian Mararescu has written especially about the link between psychedelics and religion in his book, The Immortality Key which I have only skimmed. So where do I stand on these two fronts? Well, basically what you're going to get here is a massive dose of my skepticism. I have no doubt that psychedelics have played some role in human development and culture. But the trend is for the theories around these things to overstate the importance of that role. I don't think at this point that the role played by psychedelics was very large at all, both in terms of the development of human consciousness and in terms of the development of religion. First, on the anthropological front, the theory goes that the brain size of Homo erectus doubled between 2,700,000 years ago. It's quite a big time period there, but anyway. While it is estimated that the brain volume in Homo sapiens grew three times larger between 500,000 and 100,000 years ago. What caused these major shifts? Well, basically, as the theory goes, the drugs did. With apologies to the Beatles, all you need is drugs. One problem with this theory has to do with the basic scientific naivety around monocausality. Believing in the stoned ape hypothesis, which says that our ancestors got high and then became conscious, also means assuming that there was a singular cause for the emergence of consciousness. This seems blatantly unlikely, but it is not the main problem I have with the theory. The main problem I have with the theory is that it rests on the idea that consciousness is an emergent thing. In other words, the scientific hypothesis is itself rooted in what is known as the pleonastic fallacy. It's this idea that when you change the degree of something by, for instance, multiplying complexities or altering a brain with chemicals, you end up with a change not just of the degree of consciousness but, but in fact in the kind of consciousness. First, you have a, let's say, vaguely intelligent animal who gets high and by the end of all this getting high, you don't just have a more intelligent animal, you have a human being. Now, you may think that human beings are merely animals, but literally no one on Earth acts as if that is true because, as Chesterton argues in The Everlasting Man, the more you try to consider human beings merely as animals, the more the category of animal turns out to feel just wrong. I might stand a chance of being convinced of this theory if a... Evidence can be stacked in the favor of the hypothesis on the scientific front, which at the time of my recording this, it hasn't. And B, if the scientific community or some philosopher perhaps can explain how a genuine qualitative difference of consciousness can emerge from purely material conditions. In other words, they need to prove that they are not rooting their entire hypothesis in a logical fallacy. In any case, science has yet to explain consciousness itself as consciousness, which is to say that any speculation around the role played by psychedelics at this point must necessarily border on being straight out magical thinking. So what about the religious front of this question? Well, this relates to Patrick's question about psychedelics could affect abstract thought, language, mythology, and so on. Well, here I am going to have to throw a metaphysical spanner into the works. By this theory, assuming that we are already dealing with Homo sapiens and not one of her ancestors, what would be unlocked in human consciousness by psychedelics would have to be a potential already present within the human mind and brain. This, apart from throwing the monocausality cream pipe back in our faces, would raise the question of why people would need the drugs when they have clearly been able to fairly successfully achieve altered states of consciousness without this particular technology. Still on the religious psychedelics front, Murarescu's research is remarkable. He is clearly quite brilliant, but it is not without its biases. I refer to him because he has written rather directly on the question in question. For one thing, his take seems to me to be rooted in a kind of biochemical reductionism. Drugs, not God, do the talking. And this is a metaphysical proposition, not a strictly scientific one. And as such, it naturally leads to a kind of overstatement of the role played by psychedelics in cultural formation. I also think his comparison between Jesus and Dionysius is rooted in a modernist anthropological bias that has already been long Refuted. The idea is provocative and provocative ideas are naturally more interesting to us, but is it true? I don't think so. I know that there are major developments in psychedelics research and many of these are worth paying attention to, especially with regard to helping those who are battling mental illness. I do know enough people who've had conversion experiences because of their drug trips and this is enough to confirm my assumption that God can be found in all kinds of ways. I am skeptical, however, about the long-term transformative effects of psychedelics. I have seen that psychedelics have been idolized almost as quickly and as easily as they have been vilified in the past. I do have some concerns, though, about how the new branch of psychedelics proselytizers are arguing for psychedelics as a tool for coming into contact with God. I know this is not directly referred to by Patrick, but I thought I should say something about it anyway, since the topic has come up. They do not seem to be very aware of how their own immersion in consumer culture opens a way for mass-producing so-called access to God. This is a huge issue on its own, and I'm just here to throw more skepticism at the question. I think Carl Jung was right to warn us against wisdom that we have not earned and would simply approach the question with a little more caution than some people are doing at the moment. But that is all I will say about that question for now. I hope my my skepticism has been bearable to you. So here is Patrick's fifth question. If you were to lead the design of an intentional community, what would you prioritize? What are you willing to trade off? I really do like the idea of intentional communities as a, a way to especially overcome the epidemic of loneliness. Um, I think an intentional community can prove very life-giving, even though I'm very aware that there are complexities. I'm going to get to some of these. Everyone should, wherever possible, try to foster an environment for social connection and, very importantly, personal responsibility. I happen to think the Labrie model is a pretty good one to follow since it is geared towards giving people space to ask questions around the most important stuff, God, the meaning of life, and so on. A massive part of what I think makes Labrie work is the focus on seeking truth, where all activities in the community revolve around creating space to live out that ideal, not just in their heads, but also in their bodies. It helps to that there is a predominating and largely coherent worldview in that community, which is a vital aspect of any community and any family, which I think is the first example we have of an intentional community. Intentional communities often fail. And one of the main reasons for this is because of value structures that are in some way or another incoherent. If someone steps out of line where the worldview is coherent, there is a space for correction and redemption. When the worldview is incoherent, um, and I guess too libertarian, all we end up with is one person's subjectivity versus another person's subjectivity. Intentional communities without agreed upon rules are going to suck big time. We should expect that intentional communities would fail, mind you, since at least arguably most human endeavors tend to fail startups, companies, political regimes, restaurants, and so on, everything eventually wears out. Sometimes this is no one's fault. People come and go, and ideals tend to serve a purpose for a short while before people figure out that they need something else. But I don't think this would be a reason to not attempt something like this. Rather, I think it would be a reason to attempt something like this with reasonable expectations and realistic functions. One realistic expectation would be that the community should be temporary and should perhaps be set up as temporary from the start. And obviously to set up an intentional community, it would be important to figure out what the primary intentions of that community would be. What would be the aim? What I would aim for personally if I were in charge is to set up a clear focus on virtue and cultivating virtue, thinking here obviously about the seven virtues as well as some kind of philosophical theological schooling. And then I would look at insisting on some form of incarnational practice, maybe along the lines of how to live out the virtues, both through the care of the community living space and each other, and then in some kind of ongoing community project. Um, There would need to be some form of service to others. I would insist that screen time be kept to a shocking minimum, even if that means replacing computers with typewriters and allowing only an hour a day for everyone to look at their phones. Lunchtime should be for discussing deep questions and there should be downtime for contemplation and reading and play during any given week. This is all very vague, I know, but I guess that's the gist. Oh, and what would I be willing to do without? Basically, luxuries. I think we can learn a lot from monasteries about this sort of thing. Now for question six, which is the last one I'm going to answer here. Imagine you saw a very large boulder rolling down a very long hill, and in its path was a village. You don't have enough time to get help. What do you do? The The assumption behind the question here, I think, is that I would not really be able to do very much. I, could potentially yell and alert people in the village that there is something coming and maybe hope that they hear the cry and evacuate. I'm thinking of Chesterton's wonderful line from Eugenics and Other Evils, it is best to cry out before you get hurt. So I could potentially warn people and certainly I could pray for some sort of redemption in this terrible situation. I'm assuming that my jumping in front of the boulder is not going to, in fact, stop it since it is big enough to level a village. So perhaps the best way to look at this is to look at it metaphorically. There is, as history has shown, always a boulder about to destroy something or other. Where I cannot do anything significant about it, what I do try to do in general is to pay attention, to figure out what caused the boulder to get lodged, so to speak, or to figure out why no one knew it was coming. As is typical of my nature, I try to understand things as well as I can and teach others who are willing to listen what I've observed. My hope would be that through something I have learned and something I say, maybe the next village will be luckier than the one that is facing this particular catastrophe. So there you go. Thank you, Patrick, for the wonderful questions. I hope that my answers are at least somewhat interesting to all of you certainly one of the things that i enjoy about these q and a podcasts is that i also am aware that the questions are ones that you can ask yourself how would you also answer something like what i've been asked